Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Brooke Masters, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. So before we go any further, I want to address today's sentencing of a man, Roger Stone. Roger Stone. He's become... uh, The sentencing of of Roger Stone, a longtime confidant of Donald Trump, for lying to Congress, obstruction, and witness tampering, was mired in controversy over how the U.S. Justice Department handled the case under public pressure from the president. Mr. Stone received a 40-month sentence, whereas prosecutors had recommended that he serve up to nine years. This followed seven cases of presidential clemency for white-collar criminals whose convictions included extortion, fraud, and lying to White House officials. Yes, uh, we have commuted the sentence of Rod Blagojevich. He served eight years in jail. Uh, We have uh, Bernie Carrick. We have Mike Milken, who's gone around and done an incredible job for. So, is the independence of America's judiciary under threat, or is Mr. Trump simply using the powers allotted to him? On the line with me to discuss this is Ed Luce, U.S. national editor and columnist, and Kadim Schober, U.S. legal and enforcement correspondent. First, let's hear a clip from President Trump taken just a couple of days before Stone's sentencing. Now, just so you understand, I chose not to be involved. I'm allowed to be totally involved. I'm actually, I guess, the chief law enforcement officer of the country. But I've chosen not to be involved. But he is a man of great integrity. But I would be, I could be involved if I wanted to be. The man of integrity he is referring to is U.S. Attorney General William Barr. But is this credible, given the tweets he published before the sentencing of Roger Stone? Kadim, tell us first about the case of Roger Stone, which you've covered for the FT. Who was he? Exactly what was his crime? And was this sentence particularly lenient for this kind of case? Roger Stone is a flamboyant veteran political operative in the U.S. His career goes all the way back to working on Richard Nixon's election campaign, and he has basically been the person you call as a Republican presidential candidate when you want to get your hands dirty. He calls himself a a dirty trickster, and he is an expert in the sort of muckier side of politics. In the 2016 election, he was a sort of informal advisor to Donald Trump. And one of the things he was trying to do was make contact with WikiLeaks when it became known that WikiLeaks had a trove of hacked uh, emails from the Democrats to use it for political gain. The thing that he was convicted of is in 2017, when Congress began investigating what exactly went on in the 2016 election, the House Intelligence Committee called on Mr. Stone and asked him about some of the comments he had made during the campaign. And Mr. Stone lied to Congress about who his intermediary was or who he was referring to when he was talking about having an intermediary and lied when he said that he didn't have any documents or any written materials or any text of his conversations with that intermediary. The sentence he eventually received was actually probably pretty in line with what other sort of white-collar criminals convicted of lying to Congress or the government have received. The key issue in his case was he had threatened a longtime friend of his who was also another witness, basically saying, don't contradict my story. And those threats included threatening his dog, for example. The key issue at stake was whether he was serious about that and whether, therefore, his sentence should be jacked up significantly because he had made violent threats. And eventually, the judge took the view that although it was serious that he had made violent threats, 
the person that he had threatened didn't actually feel like they were going to experience violence. Ed, tell us a bit more about Mr. Stone and the history of his friendship with the president and whether you think Mr. Trump's tweets constituted interference in the judicial process. Yeah, as Karen said, he's a flamboyant, dirty trickster who goes way back to the late 60s, early 70s. Trump met him in the late 70s. He was introduced to Trump and he uh, quickly hit it off. They shared a philosophy of, you know, playing to win, that no method is invalid, never apologize, never explain. And Stone set up with a couple of other people, a very well-known lobby group in Washington. One of his first clients was Trump, who was seeking tax breaks for a casino he was setting up in Atlantic City. And really, they've been great friends since then. So the ties between Trump and Stone go back a long way. They're very deep, and they're often allegedly nefarious. In terms of the legal outlook from this, I have no doubt that Trump will seek to pardon Stone at the first opportunity. Trump's undergoing a post-Senate acquittal, spring cleaning of his administration, ruthlessly seeking out anybody who isn't very, very loyal. So to get rid of whether they're political appointees or civil servants, anybody perceived as slightly disloyal or not loyal enough is being purged. Loyalty is a hugely important, hugely important thing to Trump. And Stone has shown loyalty. He has not, he has not divulged things that have damaged the president. He's shown toughness. He's been very Trumpian in how he's dealt with this trial. He's accused the judge, Amy Berman, of being a biased judge, which she's rejected. This is all very Trumpian, and I have no doubt that it will culminate in, at some point, President Trump pardoning Roger Stone. Got a question about what Trump actually did. Part of the reason Roger Stone was so controversial was that the line prosecutors involved in this case were uncomfortable with what Mr. Trump and the Justice Department were doing. Can you explain that to viewers and why it was such a problem? So there were four prosecutors who secured Mr. Stone's conviction at trial. So the trial team, they filed their sentencing recommendation, which was seven to nine years, which, you know, there's no bones about it. That's a serious sentence for anybody to serve. And then that evening, all of a sudden, in the early hours of the morning, sort of after midnight, Trump tweets calling it a miscarriage of justice. And he says, like, this is unacceptable. And lo and behold, the very next day, the DOJ, which is the U.S. Department of Justice, DOJ officials start saying that they agree that the sentence would be unwarranted and that they're going to reverse it. The following day of the afternoon, we see all four of the prosecutors quit the case, including one of them actually quits his job at the DOJ entirely. And subsequently, a new sentencing recommendation is put forward, which says, we're not going to ask for a particular sentence, but it ought to be far less than seven to nine years. The idea that four prosecutors would quit a case all at once is astonishing, and it was a very serious and important moment in DOJ history. It sort of shook the DOJ. It was a very dramatic moment in Washington. And the question then was, was DOJ senior leadership, you know, William Barr, the U.S. Attorney General, was he reacting to an order from Trump or was something else going on? Now, the line that DOJ has stuck to is, 
that there was a miscommunication between the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C., and between uh, Maine Justice Headquarters, also in D.C., but they're separate offices. Basically, Mr. Barr says he was not expecting to see a seven to nine year recommendation. The new prosecutor brought on said at the sentencing that the prosecutors who filed the recommendation did show in good faith and thought that they had been given approval to do so. And so Mr. Barr said, listen, this is not about Trump. This is about, I don't think that that sentence was appropriate and I was not told about what was going on. The important thing here is whether or not Mr. Trump explicitly ordered the attorney general to change the recommendation, it still gets to this question about how are friends of the president being treated in their cases. Now, it's pretty common all across the U.S. for federal prosecutors to request tough, even harsh sentences. That's not unknown. You don't often see the attorney general weighing in to ask for lighter sentences. And certainly DOJ policy at the moment is to prosecute people to the fullest extent of the law to secure the longest sentences possible. So whether or not Mr. Trump's tweets were an express order to Mr. Barr that he followed or whether he was acting independently, it still gets to this question about if you're a friend of the president, how are you going to be treated by this DOJ? While we're on the subject of friends of the president, the other thing that happened last week was a series of presidential pardons for white-collar criminals, specifically several that have connections to Mr. Trump. First, talk about Michael Milken. What did he do and why does it matter that he was pardoned? Michael Milken is, to people on Wall Street, a hero. He effectively invented the junk bond or high-yield bond market in the 80s, and then he was brought low by prosecutors and the SEC and eventually pleaded guilty to securities fraud in 1990. He served about 22 months in prison after being initially sentenced to 10 years. Ever since then, he's been rebuilding his reputation. He's a philanthropist now. You know, he has the Milken Institute. And for a long time, people on Wall Street, rich and powerful people, have felt that he was prosecuted unjustly and deserved a pardon. The other person, Mr. Trump pardoned, Rod Blagojevich, is perhaps less of a popular figure in any area. He was the former Democratic governor of Illinois and was prosecuted for trying to extort a children's hospital for campaign contributions and also trying to sell the vacated Senate seat of Barack Obama when he became president. His case involved some quite lurid wiretap quotes where he talked about Mr. Obama's Senate seat being a very valuable thing with various expletives and that he wasn't going to give it away for nothing. The fact that these pardons came just a day or two before Roger Stone's sentencing is a pretty unmistakable signal of Mr. Trump's power to grant clemency in whatever case that he wants. So prosecutors can go after his friends and associates. You know, A jury can convict him of crimes. A judge can sentence them to however long they want. Ultimately, Mr. Trump has, under the Constitution, the pardon power. And that was a pretty stark exercise of that pardon power on the eve of you know, a close friend of his being sentenced. Ed, do you think we're going to see more interventions like this by Trump, perhaps related to the Mueller probe into Russian interference in the election? People like Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen? Paul Manafort, I think, would definitely be a case for another pardon. I would be very surprised if Michael Cohen were pardoned because Michael Cohen turned into what Trump described as a rat in that inimitable kind of mob language that the president sometimes uses. Michael Cohen testified to Congress very damagingly against President Trump. So he's considered to be a turncoat. 
the thing that links, you know, all these pardons, whether it's Michael Milken, Rod Blagojevich, or Bernie Kerik, U.S. police commissioner who was a security guard, incidentally, for Rudy Giuliani, the thing that links all of them is that they're pretty well-connected people who've committed white-collar crimes and who have lobbied through Fox News, in some cases, Blagojevich's wife spoke on Fox News, Bernie Kerik spoke on Fox News, to capture the president's attention. And I think um, the pattern there is, again, a very Trumpian thing. It's, it's about people who Trump identifies with. He feels persecuted. He feels he's been unfairly targeted. And he identifies with others who fit that description. Again, though, the role of connections and of mutual friends and of Fox as a sort of auditioning platform for a pardon, these are very common. There's a pattern here. How big a cause of concern is all this? I mean, is Trump's use of the pardon power markedly different from other presidents? Bill Clinton famously on his last day in office, pardoned Mark Rich, hedge fund billionaire and friend of the Clintons, former donor to the Clintons. And that caused a lot of um, bad blood. Clinton was heavily criticized for intervening on behalf of a friend, and it stood out. And I guess the reason I mention that is it was fairly unusual. It's now completely normal. Trump has pardoned many, many people who under the conventions of US pardon history wouldn't really qualify. So I think he has changed the norm quite dramatically. And just to add on that, there's an interesting historical link here. Another controversial use of the pardon power in the past was George H.W. Bush, who infamously pardoned a whole swath of former officials who were indicted in connection to the Iran-Contra scandal. And Bill Barr, the current U.S. Attorney General, was back then also Attorney General. And so Mr. Barr, um, he had pushed not just for one pardon of Catherine Weinberger, who was the former Secretary of Defense. He said, listen, if you're going to pardon any of these people, you have to pardon all of them. I think his quote was, in for a penny, in for a pound. And so you may have the curious historical echo, if Mr. Trump loses later this year, of his attorney general at the end of his time in office being the same attorney general at the end of George W. Bush's time in office, advising him on you know who to pardon before he leaves. How has all this been received in Washington and then around the U.S.? Do people care? It's been received, as many other actions by President Trump have been received, with a sort of high-temperature reaction inside the Washington Beltway and a shrug outside. The norms that are being trashed here, you know, are very significant when you look at the powers of the presidency, the procedures that the president uses before he acts, and the conventions that are being you know, shredded, cause a great deal of angst in Washington, D.C., across the political divide, and almost barely register a ripple outside of Washington. The same, of course, applied to impeachment. It really didn't resonate much and isn't resonating much in the Democratic primaries in places like Iowa, New Hampshire. And so I think this is far, far lower. It, maybe it should be different in an ideal world, but it registers far, far lower on the voters' radar than, than even impeachment. Wow. Kadim, any further thoughts about whether there will be further repercussions for the way cases are prosecuted or handled by the DOJ? 
so the question now, if you're a lion prosecutor, whether that's in Washington, D.C., or in New York, where there are you know ongoing cases potentially involving associates of the president, or you know anywhere else in the U.S., is if you start investigating somebody with links to the president, if you're thinking about whether you have the evidence to indict them, you're going to be looking at what went on in the Roger Stone case and saying every decision you make is probably going to be second-guessed. There's going to be a ton of media scrutiny. The president is likely to tweet about it. He may even attack you as he has attacked the prosecutors in the Roger Stone case. And so you have to ask whether that's going to put a chill on any possible investigations of people linked to this president. Thanks, Ed and Cottam, and thanks for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our latest episodes on the Iranian election, the oil money flowing into sport, and whether oil and gas are turning into stranded assets, you can subscribe and listen on all of the usual podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode of FT News in Focus, rate us or leave a comment on your podcast provider. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.